It's Wednesday, September 6th, 2023 from Peach Fish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. In my 20s, I held fourth in a hogwan. Yes, I taught in a Korean supplemental educational institution in Seoul, specifically teaching the Koreans how to take the SAT. Lots of high math, low verbal splits. I am not kidding. But in my hard-won hogwan time, I learned this. Korean parents are dedicated, passionate, invested, seriously invested in their children's educations to the point of destruction at times. Feeling the brunt of it these days are Korean teachers who just can't take these hyper-focused parents. After a few high-profile suicides, Korean teachers have begun speaking out en masse. They've taken to the streets in protest of parental excess. Now, they do so during the weekends. They're not desperate enough to actually disrupt the school day. But it was a creed teaching corps, as the BBC reported. And what this did here has opened this Pandora's box, really, where teachers all across the country have started sharing their own stories about how they are frequently harassed by teachers here who call them all hours of the day on their mobile phones and at weekends complaining. Essentially, they say that these are overbearing parents who are just completely fixated on their children's success at school. And, you know, look, some of these complaints are serious that teachers are having to deal with. The teachers say that they can be accused of child abuse if they try to restrain violent children or if they try to send children out of the class. And they can be accused of emotional abuse if they just tell children off. So they say that it's reached the point where they don't even feel safe to teach or discipline their children. I feel for these teachers. I also note that like in the US, the issue was framed as one of competing harms, bullying or counter-bullying, who's the real bully, using anti-abuse rules as a means of abuse. I also noted, as I accessed that video on YouTube, I noted the ad playing before it. Program director here at Zenith Prep Academy, where we help 6th to 12th graders get into an Ivy League or top 25 university, or at least a tier or two better university. And the reason that we're able to do that is because in the last 17 years, we've helped thousands of 6th to 12th graders in over 40 states get into the top universities they deserve. American public school teachers are not about to take to the streets protesting overly involved parents, but the YouTube algorithm is adept at identifying the percent of American parents who may be siding with the Korean counterparts on that one. The kind of consumer for whom it would not strike them odd to hear a claim of helping 6th graders get into the university that they deserve. Des- deserve, of course, defined as those who can afford the Zenith Prep Academy. Prep Academy also, of course, being a fancy American word for hogwan. On the show today, to the skies, we return quite safely. But first, yesterday I talked with Franklin Four about his new book, The Last Politician Inside Joe Biden's White House and the Struggle for America's Future. And we spent time on policies that Biden's champion. Today, in part two of our conversation, we'll talk politics. Hunter, Bernie, Kirsten Cinema, Houseboat Joe, and how Biden's big mouth is a problem and an asset. Franklin Four up next. Franklin Four is out with the last politician inside Joe Biden's White House and the struggle for America's future. Yesterday, we talked about Biden's approach to power and politics, i.e. politics is what Joe Biden does. 
Today, let's get into some of Frank's revelations. For instance, Biden considered then rejected Bernie Sanders as Secretary of Labor. I asked Frank about the Sanders-Biden relationship. I think that actually Joe Biden wouldn't have been terribly unhappy making uh, Bernie Sanders the, the Labor Secretary. I think that he has some personal affection for them. One of the interesting things about their relationship is that Bernie Sanders is, of course, genuinely skeptical of establishment figures like Joe Biden. But during the campaign in 2020, he would go to all these state fairs in Iowa and he would speak after Joe Biden or speak right before Joe Biden. And he would watch him on the stage. And he saw that Joe Biden was the one candidate who actually talked about non-college educated voters in a respectful sort of way. And for Bernie Sanders, that's the tell. That's yeah. the thing that actually matters. Like, if you're really serious about his agenda, then you don't just structure everything to kind of pander to um, your your overeducated elite base. You you talk about these voters in a way that shows that you actually understand their plight. And he felt like Joe Biden did that, and he was willing to work with him. I think he's now pretty disillusioned with the Biden presidency for all the reasons that you outlined. Um, but there was a long time in which he was willing to to gamble on Joe Biden as a vehicle for fulfilling his dreams because there was this fundamental sense of class alignment and trust that he placed it in placed in him. Tell me about this is a detail. I mean, these are important details, but I hadn't known this before. To get the Inflation Reduction Act passed, you, you had to have Mansion on board and cinema on board. Manchin comes off, he's fully fleshed out. You understand his foibles, what his yeah. motivations are. He wants to be liked. Cinema is more of a mercurial figure given to whims and maybe at least in your framing. I'm not going to say not as principled, but her principles do seem to be, you know, helping out Wall Street, let's say. But there's a portion where she voted for a Thune Amendment knowing that she'd also vote for an amendment that would undo the Thune Amendment. Could you take me through that? I was not aware of that. No. Um, so what happened was the there's actually tension between Manchin and Cinema. Yeah. That it's it's quite natural in a way that when you have they two people who are vying to be fiftieth yeah. senator who's uh, courted. Yes, exactly. And there is tension in their worldviews that Joe Biden uh, Joe Manchin is somebody who comes with a West Virginia a little bit more of a populist worldview than Kirsten Cinema. Cinema is somebody who hangs out with with Wall Street bankers. She's very comfortable with with economic elites. Joe Manchin doesn't especially want to do anything to shatter the fossil fuel energy, even though he goes along with this climate bill. Whereas Cinema, I think, really actually does care about climate change. And so there was this um, like hydraulic thermostatic. Uh, thing in these negotiations, every time Biden and Schumer set out to please Manchin, they would do something to offend, uh, offend cinema and vice versa. And so at the very end, when Manchin in secret hashes out this agreement with, with Schumer and then with Biden and then with Pelosi, cinema wasn't kept in the loop. And so she was determined to put her stamp on this legislation. And Manchin had constructed the legislation in such a way in which there was a provision that was bound to really piss off cinema, that he included this carried, uh, cl closing the carried interest uh, loophole, which yeah. allows, right. Which hedge funds and Wall Street love. 
And to my knowledge, Sinema is the only Democrat who defends it. Yeah, there are other Democrats who probably privately defend it, but she's the only one. Schumer might be one because he has (laughs) a lot of Wall Street clients and donors anyway. Yeah. So Sinema objects to it and she she votes, she agrees with John Thune, who's the number two Republican in the Senate, that she's going to strip it from the bill. And then this carefully constructed thing starts to to crumble. And then Schumer and Manchin and the Democrats are left scrambling to try to find some sort of way to get cinema on board at the last minute. And they come up with this very complicated scheme where she votes against one amendment and votes for another amendment. And ultimately, she plays ball. But I think it just points to the ultimate difficulty that that Biden had in, in pulling any sort of legislative achievement together. When he wasn't dealing with a bipartisan coalition of senators, he was stuck having to negotiate essentially with two different senators who have two very different sets of interest. And every time, like I said, this was happening throughout the entire year that he kept tr- trying to placate them, but then ended up pissing off the other one and, and, and he could never get to yes. So early on in the book, you talk about the dangers of gerontocracy and that they are the belief that these old people won't think in the long term. And yet, and you don't explicitly make the point, but think about how the inflation you force, you lead readers to think about how the Inflation Reduction Act is passed and who passed it. And it's Nancy Pelosi, who's 82, and Chuck Schumer, who's 72, and Joe Manchin, who's older than Chuck Schumer. I don't know why it doesn't seem that way. Maybe the houseboat (laughs) makes you seem younger. So all these octogenarians and septuagenarians getting it done and for the future. And there, I mean, cinema was dragged along. She's 47 and the progressives are all very young. It doesn't seem, if you really look at not their public image, but the substance of their achievement, it doesn't seem that having a leadership who are in their 70s and 80s did anything to hurt the future. And in fact, it seemed like these very experienced hands steered the ship when the ship needed steering. Yeah. So I should admit that when I began this book, I began with, I think, what the conventional image of Joe Biden that is shared by the Washington elite, which is that this guy was a blowhard. He was a bloviator, that he was, he had all the sins of the politician, um, which is that politicians are artificial. They're they're never true to their word, word. But One of the things that happened as I observed him up close is that my respect for him grew, but also my respect for politics as a vocation. And power is a hard thing to wield, that if you don't have a lot of experience wielding power, you wield it, you you often wield it badly. And that uh, what, what makes things happen in politics is that you need to have an understanding of psychology. You need to have a theory of the mind of the person you're sitting across from. You need to be able to, um, at least uh, in a detached sort of way, if not an empathetic sort of way, understand their motivations, understand their mindset. And what Biden has, I think, is that he's got this ability to, to, to look at the person and say, okay, what do they really want? He can size somebody up, I think, pretty quickly. And it's the type of thing that only happens if you've gone through a million budget negotiations. One of 
I think the signature moments of this presidency was that he got the debt ceiling resolved without any real pain and without any real drama. And this is the thing that's brought the nation well, to the I brink. don't know if you would say any real drama. I've, I thought it was the antithesis of drama, but it certainly <laughs> occupied our consciousness for two. No, long. no, and I'm, I'm not saying it was a dramatic thing, but I think yeah. what was what was what was interesting was that we didn't end up going. Over the brink, we didn't we didn't really push in. And what he did was he was able to sit down with Kevin McCarthy and understand, okay, this guy has an ego. What I need to do is let him walk out into the driveway, speak to the cameras, look like he's owning this negotiation. I don't want my staff trashing this guy off the record to reporters. Right. I'm going to let this guy feel okay about this process. Right. Meanwhile- Good, good parallel with Zelensky or uh, offering that great quote, I don't need a ride, I need ammunition. As you report, he never said that. And the administration yeah. could have been like, he's kind of embarrassing us, let's correct the record. But no, because they understood exactly what they understood about McCarthy there. He needs that. Yeah. One of my favorite stories in the book actually predates his presidency, but Randy Weingarten, the head of the teachers union, um, was upset with Obama because Obama had uh, applauded a school district in Rhode Island that had fired a bunch of teachers. And Joe Biden was forced to go to the AFL-CIO executive committee meeting the next week. And Weingarten is complaining to him. And Biden uh, is fighting back. He's pushing back against her extremely hard. He's arguing with her. He's gesturing at her. He's walking towards her. And she thinks that a fist fight is about to break out and the Secret Service is going to have to apply him away. But she gets into he gets into her face and then he whispers into her ear, don't worry, we'll get this done. And, you know, lo and behold, like a week or two later, he's able to negotiate some sort of compromise that makes everybody happy in the end. And that's what politics is, that there is this theatricality to it. But in the end, it's about it's about making concessions to people you don't agree with, whether they're Bernie Sanders to your left or Kevin McCarthy to your right. And that's just simply the way that things get done in a system. You can't bully people into voting against their own interest or for voting for things that they don't believe in. Maybe that can be effective occasionally, but it's not its not a style that will allow you to be perpetually successful. So I want to get to the one thing that voters are obsessed with, which is his age. You chronicle his achievements and his process and what we should take from it. And then there's the television presentation. And by the way, it's not always the television presentation. There are plenty of interviews where he comports himself really well. He did a Fareed Zakaria interview where you'd watch it and you'd say, oh, this guy's got all, absolutely all of his faculties together. There's no problem. What are you talking about? But then we all see the other problems. Should we I mean, is it proper, the bully pul pulpit's important, being able to explain things to the American people and people do lose it as they age. What, what do you think voters should do? Should they discount the televised spectacle and only look at what you chronicle in print? Or is there any legitimacy to the questions of age, legitimacy to times when the age you actually do chronicle the age had an impact on some of his decision making or even some of his uh, behavior in situations what's the proper way for a voter who wants to do the right thing to think about what this man seems to show us about his age and somewhat cognitive decline i think of course age matters and then of course they're legitimate questions i would say uh there 
are two sides to aging and we've just been hashing them out. On the one hand, he will forget people's names and he'll have he'll have senior moments and those happen and those are real. And then there's the wisdom that comes with having a long career. And that's also real. Um, and the hard thing about the aging question is that you can't, you can't trace it forward. We don't know how he's going to age over the course of the next four years. I think if you were to look at him now, which is the only way that you could judge him, I would say that, um, age has probably made him a bad communicator and a, and, and a, and a poor messenger. And that's a real defect in a president because that's one of the main obligations of a president is to serve as this um, national parent figure. Um, uh, on the other hand, like when it comes to major decisions or it comes to negotiations or it comes to the actual stuff of government, I just haven't seen any evidence that his age has impaired his ability to do his job. You didn't come, you didn't uncover anything where there was a question of uh, cognition or mental processing that got in the way of him making the proper decisions for America? No. And there are times when he seems to have made a mistake, like when he went into those negotiations and talked about, we need to vote on both the infrastructure bill and the then build back better. And I guess insiders or people who knew what was going on saying that was pretty crazy because he damned he damned the build back better bill with that decision. But that's not an age decision. That's just a poor strategy decision. I mean, it's so it's like, how do you attribute Joe Biden's behavior? Like, do, it, to me, that was just Joe Biden being Joe Biden. Yeah, I mean, I guess you would say, well, did he discuss it beforehand with smart advisors who are in their 40s and are geniuses? And did they say, yeah, this is the way to go? And then he went and did it. Then you can't say it's because the man's in his 80s. Yeah, but it's also Joe Biden talks a lot. Yeah. And Joe Biden often says things that are, you know, when gay marriage happened in this country to get <laughs> to some extent because the guy went on Meet the Press and said something he wasn't supposed to say. Right. That's just the way he rolls. And he's always rolled. He's got a mouth that runs. He's very imprecise when he talks in public. And he's always been imprecise when he talks in public. It's probably gotten a little bit worse with age, but... I don't know if the moment that you're talking about was had anything to do with age. I think it has to do with Joe Biden wanting to be liked and wanting to um, please different constituencies of people and him straining too hard to do that. Give me your assessment on the investigation into Hunter Biden. I guess there's a continuum between this is only a Republican fever dream or maybe there's going to be something there that could hurt his reelection chances. Well, first of all, uh, there's no apologizing for Hunter Biden's behavior. Hunter Biden is a scuzzy figure, even if he is an emotionally damaged human being. Um, he's tried to exploit his father's career, his father's authority, his father's power in ways that are reprehensible and part of the endemic corruption that we suffer in our country. Um, you know, we, I also think that Hunter Biden has now been investigated by five years by a Trump appointed uh, prosecutor, and he never came up with the goods. And so it seems like Hunter Biden didn't pay his taxes. Hunter Biden lied on this gun form, but Hunter Biden didn't exploit the system in a way that was um, 
that was illegal or um, uh, corrupt in any sort of way that would be prosecutable. So, um, no, there's a, there, there is smoke there that doesn't doesn't look great for Joe Biden. But my my instinct is is that he did let his son uh, probably exploit his name, um, and he did it mostly for noble parental reasons or for understandable parental reasons, maybe not noble. I mean, I think the noble thing to do would have been to say, listen, buddy, like you shouldn't be doing this type of work. And I'm not going to take you at your word when you say that no, no harm can come from this because I've seen the ways in which you've harmed yourself over time. Um, But I think it's a complicated relationship. There's probably a lot of guilt on both sides of it. And the inability to deal with a son who's suffering is um, not really an appropriate standard for judging a president. The last question for you about the last politician is just that word, politician. One theory of the case is the reason why Donald Trump is so popular is that people so hate politicians, they're looking for an anti-politician, and Donald Trump is impolitic. However, you know, you make the case in the book that there is a virtue to politics, there is an effectiveness to politics. And so if people actually think he is a politician still operating in the realm of politics, will he necessarily be punished? Maybe a focus group won't like the word, but do you think that Joe Biden can flourish, succeed, win re-election if what he's done is very much seen as politics? Will the electorate punish him for politics? Um. I think that clearly there's a way for him to turn the, turn the term into a virtue. And um, it, it, one of the things that I admire about Joe Biden is that he comes back to this political maxim constantly that he attributes to his father. I'm sure his father said it, but it's it's so much of a cliche right. that it's hard. he says, don't judge me against the almighty, uh, almighty judge me against the alternatives. And that is the ultimate politician's sentiment. It's a, it's a totally realistic thing for him to to say, which is that I don't need to be perfect. I don't need people to love me. I just need people to think that I'm better than the other guy. And I think in the end, uh, you know, I don't I don't like to make prognostications about the coming election because whatever I say will inevitably be wrong. Um, And I don't trust my political instincts in that sort of way, even though I am a political reporter. Um, I I approach it with some humility. Um, But it's a pretty reasonable way of thinking about the next election. Franklin Foer is a staff writer at The Atlantic. He was previously editor-in-chief of The New Republic. And his latest massive book is about Joe Biden. It's called The Last Politician, Frank Frankie, as Joe Biden's dad might say, thanks so much. (laughs) Thank you, Mikey. And now the spiel. I had a near miss with the New York Times airline near miss story. In case subscribers nearly missed the point, they had their lead reporter, Sidney Ember, on The Daily yesterday, following up the print story of about a week ago. And they also ran an excerpt of the Q&A that Sidney and Daily host Michael Barbaro committed to. Here's some of what she said on The Daily. 
And so putting all of this together, these safety reports, these public databases, a picture started to emerge of a lot more close calls than almost anyone realizes are happening, occurring extremely frequently, really alarmingly frequently. And so she raised the alarm and did so frequently in print on pod and in print again. And good, I guess. If there's unsafe practices occurring, it is the duty of the news media to advocate for safety. If there is an underfunded agency, and there always is, I guess they need to let us know. By the way, every branch of the military says this every year. There is a constituency for that message. Almost every police department says this almost every year, and a certain type of person will worry about that. Yes, the police is not funded enough. The more jet-setting New York Times reader probably will not care that much about the police department funding story, but they will care about safety in the air. But sure, the statistics do point to a danger to the citizenry, as there always is a danger to the citizenry. So then I say the newspaper should cover the story by all means. Well, not by all means. Because as I said the other day, the actual story is actually a story of the greatest period of safety in aviation history. And some worry it might be less safe mainly because it couldn't be any more safe with zero major commercial airline crashes over the last 14 years. 14 years! For all my life, until I turned around 40, every few months there was a pretty big air disaster, with tens, maybe dozens dead. Every few years, a giant tragedy would occur with over 100 dead. Now, no dead, but worry about near misses and calling that situation a crisis. Wait, I just want to pause on that. That means more than once a day, 46 times in a single month. That's right. On average, it seemed like they were happening more than once a day. And then when we looked at the NASA database for the most recent 12-month period for which data is available, what we saw was roughly 300 documented reports of close calls on the ground and in the air. It is a crisis of non-occurrence. One generation's crisis is another's utopia, a dream. These air disasters dominated the news year in and year out. I looked up one of the almanacs, Info Please, remember that one? These were their top domestic stories from 1986. Two about the presidential election, five were Clinton domestic initiatives, you'll hear one of them here, and then FBI arrest suspected Unabomber, April 3rd, Clinton signs line item veto, President blocks ban on late-term abortions. Value jet crashes in Everglades, killing 110 aboard May 11th. 747 airliner crashes in Atlantic off Long Island. All 230 aboard perish. These events occupied the same terrorizing mental landscape as would terrorism in just a few years' time, as do school shootings now. And then we solved the problem. And then after we solved the problem, we worried on the front page how the problem might not be permanently, perfectly solved. It's not really even so much a media criticism. I keep talking about the daily and the front page. It's really a human nature note. We do progress very badly. We don't recognize it, and we worry about threats a lot more than we appreciate accomplishments. I mean, what is the biggest story about America's response to COVID? I don't know, something like fighting over masks, the slow rollout, 1.1 million deaths, right? Well, how about the fact that we invented a miracle drug for a disease that at any other time in human history would have killed millions more than it did? The real story is a miraculous triumph. No, wait, not a miracle. It's human ingenuity. As great an accomplishment as could be fathomed, except we don't even spend time to fathom it. 
I don't expect COVID to have positive associations, but it is fair to look at it through a much more positive lens. We are so threatened, so stressed, so bummed out, so much of the time. New York Magazine's podcast columnist linked to the near-miss story with the note, well, there goes six years of flight anxiety therapy. (sighs) I hope not. The skies are still safe, Nick. We're inundated with doom. We're inundated with real doom and supposed doom and potential doom and concocted doom. And we're not good as a species at telling it apart. If so, our ancestors years ago would have been really worried about the lion and gotten eaten by the saber-toothed tiger. Even this system, this, as I've demonstrated, very effective, not foolproof, but working perfectly well for a a decade and a half, even this system of safety is described in really uninspiring terms. Technology on runways and technology on the planes themselves that alert controllers and pilots to potential collisions. And in aviation circles, the safety system is known as the Swiss cheese model. The patchy metaphor there is meant to convey redundancy, that if the Swiss cheese slices are stacked on top of each other, then it won't have holes. But in sports, a Swiss cheese defense is one you could slice right through. In just about every metaphor, Swiss cheese does not connote safety. There are phrases for redundancy and a commitment to safety, phrases like a belt and suspenders method. Or since this method is a mechanical system, plus air traffic control, plus pilots, plus modern planes, it should be considered a belt and another form of suspenders and sock garters, all the stuff, all at once. It's pretty safe. How safe? No crashes. How unsafe? That's the crisis of could-be crashes. It's very hard for me to come off in a commentary like this, which is really the second commentary like this, without seeming blasé and unconcerned and overly flippant about lives in the balance. I know I risk leaving that impression. Instead, I would like for my words to be read more optimistically. Let's brightside the accomplishment, like we should brightside the overall decline in political assassinations, the decline in auto thefts, the decline in violent crime, the decline in huge decline in auto deaths by vehicle mile traveled, the giant strides we've made in cancer survival rates. There is so, so much. It's not perfect, but it's clearly improving. I call this the Dutch cheese method, meaning things are good, but they could be good. But if you would rather sidestep the sunny optimism approach, I did, you heard me, I did invoke the phrase near misses three times. It's the Beetlejuice rule, but it calls forth George Carlin. Here's one they just made up. Near miss. When two planes almost collide, they call it a near miss. It's a near hit. A collision is a near miss. Look, they nearly missed. Now that right there, that is a human nature critique, but also a media critique in this instance. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is CLO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu, jeeperu, dooperu, and thanks for listening. I don't care for that. I like a serious attitude on the plane, especially on the flight deck, which is the latest euphemism for cockpit. 
can't imagine why they wouldn't want to use a lovely word like cockpit, can you? Especially with all those stewardesses going in and out of it all the time.